consumers start moving, industry will have to move and it makes easier for politicians to move. Meet Auke Lott. Perhaps you've read his contributions to the Energy Transitions Commission or the Financial Times. This is Net Zero, a podcast by the Florence School of Regulation about the energy transition and climate change. I am Joana Freitas, and in this series, I'm inviting myself into the minds of some truly insightful people with very different perspectives. Today, we are joined by Auke Lott, CEO of StackNet and member of the Energy Transitions Commission, to discuss the role and future of carbon pricing in the energy transition. Auke, thank you for joining us. Great honor. So there are two main instruments for putting a price on emissions. Either the government creates a price, a tax, or it issues a fixed volume of emission allowances and leaves the market to determine a price for these allowances. The EU, for example, has a mixed system. 41% of greenhouse gas emissions fall under the emissions trading system, 7% are covered by carbon taxes, and 4% fall under both instruments. What do you see as the key benefits and challenges of each alternative? Well, indeed, I think economists will argue that you can uh, reach your goals either by fixing uh, the volume or fixing the price. Uh, and one is a system of carbon permits and the other one with a system with uh, carbon taxes. I think we should uh, not take too much time in uh, looking into the theoretical differences. They can do the job both. We have now a system in Europe, the ETS, which uh, functions pretty well. And we should probably rather uh, focus on how can we improve that. To my mind, we don't have too much time left to clean up CO2 emissions. So what can we do to improve the ETS as it is in, in Europe? And um, There, I think maybe you can, by combining some of the good things of both systems, even improve what we have today. So, for example, um, uh, a floor price uh, combined with the ETS as it is today could create uh, somewhat more predictability around future costs of carbon and and. Uh, Uh, certainty about the future cost of carbon is good for business because then they know how to react. So I think that would be one element to consider, uh, a floor price in the, the ETS. Another thing which, which I think uh, one should take a look at is, of course, this issue of free allocations, which actually disturb the effects of the carbon price because you kind of compensate before you, you pay the, the cost, actually. Uh, and obviously that, that system needs to be uh, reduced over time uh, so that the uh, cost of carbon really starts biting there where it should. There might be some arguments uh, to step outside the ETS. Uh, to give you just one example, um, if you want to, to spur, accelerate innovation in, uh, in getting CO2 out of the system, Uh, you could artificially put a very high cost in a specific sector and thereby actually uh, improve the, the, the rate of innovation in that sector. In, in Norway, many years ago, um, there was a CO2 tax installed in the offshore sector. 
And that sector, uh, of course, at that time was a very profitable sector. And, in oil uh, drilling uh, offshore. In oil drilling offshore. And, uh, and it is still a very profitable sector. So um, I think as early as in the early 90s, uh, one decided to put a price on the emissions of CO2 offshore related to the production and, and, and drilling of oil at around um, 40 uh, euros, almost five, 50 euros, I think, at that time, which in 2000, uh, 1990 was quite quite high. And that created a, um, a boost for that industry because then it was a, a cost which really bite. And then uh, you, uh, and it was, of course, in an industry which was quite profitable. So they had uh, the means and the technologies probably to... Uh, to increase the rate of innovation. So there might be reasons why you would step outside a carbon trading system and rather go for a tax if you want really to get an acceleration of, of innovation in a specific sector. So a floor price, getting rid of free allowances, and then uh, specific uh, measures outside the ETS would be improvements. I wanted to discuss as well how different sectors can be affected by um, by, by carbon pricing. In Europe, for example, there are, as you know, a number of sectors that are not subject to emission restrictions, like agriculture and transport, even though they are responsible for a large share of greenhouse emissions. For example, agriculture um, hmm. has a similar share as energy um, yes. production, about a quarter. So in your opinion, do you think we should bring these sectors, transport, heating, and maybe agriculture into um, a carbon pricing uh, scheme? What do you see as the key challenges and the way to tackle them for the road ahead? Well, the, the short answer is yes. I think we, uh, we don't have time to lose. Uh, most of us now agree that we need to move to uh, zero carbon or carbon neutrality by 2050. That's not that many years. So uh, uh, we need to give the, the strongest possible signals that it, it costs uh, the society uh, when we emit CO2. Having the ETS in place, um, I think it, uh, the obvious thing is to extend the ETS to as many sectors as possible. And I, I say possible because certain sectors, it's not so easy. Uh, and, and we might need similar or we might be, need other instruments. But I, I guess what we need to look for is that if we do it differently and not put sectors inside the ETS, we should at least give them the incentives which would be which would correspond to the price which comes out of our ets system so if if, if the, the the equilibrium price or the the, the cost of a, a carbon permit in, in eu is uh, 35 euros or something like that then um, one needs to find measures similarly to that cost for that sector which then is for whatever reason decided not to be part of the ETS. So when we first have this anchor of the ETS, I think we should use those the signals coming out of that instrument uh, in sectors where we are, for whatever reasons, not able to put it into the ETS. Um, the other question is how uh, a pricing of carbon should be managed in, in different countries, whether we should have yeah. one price or different countries should be allowed to have their own systems. In the EU, for example, um, if we followed a single price approach, carbon prices would have a significant impact um, in countries, for example, like Poland, where the electricity production is still very dependent on coal. Hmm. Um, in your view, how, how should the European um, institutions uh, approach this issue? 
Well, I think we should we should recognize that countries might have completely different starting points, uh, and, and then uh, one size fits all is difficult. I think. Um, for obvious reasons, Eastern Europe is in a completely different shape uh, than Western Europe. Uh, although uh, the curtain fell in '89 or there around, it's still there, there. There's very big differences in in fundamental structures uh, surrounding the economy. Uh, what, what what I think is is interesting, of course, here is that in the EU. Um, countries have said we are in this all together. That's that's how I read actually the EU as a construction. We are in it together for, for whatever purpose, but we are in it together. And that means that you have, have to solve the, uh, I think, the challenge together. Uh, and that means uh, that uh, you might uh, need to support certain countries which had a different starting point uh, compared to countries which had a very good starting point. That's how I read uh, what is the spirit of the EU. I mean, we are in it together and we will find solutions together. And when I listen to the new, the incoming president, we, the, uh, she is talking about a, a fair and just transition. I read that as saying, yes, uh, we are different. We have different starting points, but we need to find solutions together. And they need to be, be fair uh, seen from almost every perspective. Interesting. So we need a strong political cohesion to uh, to make obviously this yes. So you mentioned uh, a floor for carbon prices as a way to improve the ETS, um, and I wanted to go back to um, the level, the right level hmm. of pricing for CO two emissions. Um, the World Bank estimates that carbon prices need to be in the range of fifty to hundred US dollars per ton of CO two by twenty thirty hmm. to achieve the Paris Agreement goals. Um, while today um, the prices, the carbon prices in Europe are um, somewhere between 25 and 35 euros per, per ton of CO2. In your perspective, what reforms are needed um, both on the European ETS system and on the tax side to achieve such a level of carbon prices? Well, here I'm, I'm coming from the other side. <laughs> I, I would say I don't actually know what the right price of carbon should be. I know that uh, we should go to down to zero in 2050. Uh, we need to make a path from uh, the current emissions level to uh, the zero in 2050. And through the ETS, it means that we would have uh, uh, allowances which, which would decline every single year so that we will end up at zero. And the market will tell me what actually the real cost of carbon in such a system will be. And I think that that's important uh, to take with us, that uh, we, we can only guess what we think uh, is necessary. But um, remember, the market should help us to find the most cost-efficient solutions. And I think that's extremely important, actually, that we let the market work. Otherwise, if we don't do that, we can risk that the transition becomes too costly and we actually lose public support. So this is um, a balancing act. Uh, we should not mess around too much with uh, what price uh, is needed uh, because there might happen things in technology which were stimulated by, for example, a very, very high price and, and, and that would create a boost in innovation and, and suddenly things look a little bit, bit different. So, so I think when we now want to uh, move forward towards 2050, we should actually uh, tell the market that uh, 
we we want to get to a zero carbon society and and the market should help us to do that so having said that i think it's interesting to um, to do some calculations sometimes and that's what we did in the energy transition commission where we um, produced a study on uh, what does it take to drive out carbon in the so-called hard to bait sectors uh, say steel aluminum plastics uh, shipping uh, what actually do we need in terms of new technology and costs related to that uh, and probably uh, carbon prices to, to shift from one old technology to the new one. If you take the example we, uh, which we spent some time on, which is uh, the production of ammonia. Early uh, 1900 actually, uh, one produced ammonia with electricity. Strange enough, uh, in Norway, we had hydropower, uh, lots of hydropower. There was not really a market for electricity. So one used electricity actually to produce uh, ammonia in a rather large scale. And as you know, ammonia is used to produce fertilizers, which are pretty important, uh, talking about the agricultural sector. So um, when time, time moved on, um, one experienced uh, actually that uh, electricity had uh, definitely an alternative value but because society started to use electricity for other purposes. And uh, one discovered natural gas. And then there were some clever engineers who found out that you can produce ammonia with natural gas. So today, globally, we produce almost all our fertilizers and ammonia with natural gas. And that's a lot of emissions. Uh, that's probably 500 million tons. That's 10 times the Norwegian annual emissions globally because of the production of fertilizers. Then we, in the commission, we went back and said, okay, suppose we will have large amounts of green electricity at um, a not too high cost. Uh, and we think that's possible because we see prices for our costs for solar and wind falling dramatically. So suppose we can uh, we can go back to the past uh, situation where we have cheap electricity. Um, what would it take to go back to the technology to produce ammonia with electricity? And we arrived at, this is a bit by back of the envelope, but if you have a, a power price of around three euro cents per kilowatt hour, and you put a cost of carbon of around 50 euros per ton on the emissions of traditional ammonia production, then you would be back into a situation where you rather would produce ammonia and fertilizers with electricity than with natural gas. I think that's an, uh, a very interesting example on where you see um, what might happen in the years to come. Um, uh, we probably uh, will experience uh, falling and falling costs of power because of the technology improvements in solar and wind. We will probably also be able to tie this together in a well-functioning power market. And if we then have the right cost of carbon, in this case, we need to be in the surroundings of, of 50 euros per ton. Actually, players, producers of ammonia will go back to the old technology, which is using electricity to produce ammonia. So it's a long story, but it, um, I think it indicates that uh, the transition is doable, uh, provided that we get access to uh, low costs of electricity, but accompanied by, uh, uh, call it a, a good uh, or a relevant price of carbon.
Um, I wanted to focus now on the effects on trade of carbon pricing. A carbon price of the magnitude that is coherent with the Paris Agreement goals will put EU businesses at a competitive disadvantage versus imported goods from countries where this type of policies is not applied. The new European Commission President, um, European Green Deal, mentions the creation of a carbon border tax that would offset this effect and avoid carbon leakage. Could you share your view on the use of this type of instruments? What do you see as the key risks and difficulties on implementing a carbon border tax? Well, first of all, I would say that uh, I was asked during a, a conference, uh, what are the words which made most impression on you during the half, last half year in relationship to climate change? And then I answered carbon border tax. I, I think that the EU now seems to be willing to start to use uh, trade policy instruments in their toolkit to hit the, the climate change targets is almost mind-boggling because it's, I mean, uh, to, to mention, I think it was very, very um, brave to by the EU and by uh, incoming president uh, von der Leyen to, to mention it in her speech to the European Parliament as the number one issue, actually. And it was not just, again, repeating things around the ETS. It was actually saying, no, we want to go all in. Uh, we need to give uh, a signal to our industries that uh, they will not be alone in being hit by carbon costs if countries uh, which want to export stuff to the EU don't have cost on carbon, then we will put it on it for them by introducing a carbon border tax, which is uh, to me a complete, well, it's almost moving the goalposts a little bit. It, it's for, from, from saying that we want to do the, all this alone, we, we actually create conditions that uh, will force our neighbors actually one way or the other to join us in the fight against climate change. So it's very brave and it might actually change uh, the dynamics of the, uh, the carbon, uh, the international climate negotiations. Of course, there are risks, uh, big risks. We see what, what trade wars can do. We don't have to look farther, further than to the US and China. So starting uh, meddling with trade relations is, is, is high risk business. And, uh, and I'm sure that the EU has thought very well through this. Uh, you don't start talking about such an issue unless you have actually uh, thought through the downsides of it. I, I tend to compare it with uh, central bankers. They don't talk about devaluations until they do it. And it's a bit here. I, th I think the moment you take it on board, put it on the agenda, it is a, a very strong signal that you are serious. And what, what could the implications be? I think the, the, maybe the most important actually is that it is a very strong signal to business in Europe that yes, you are not alone. So yes, keep developing green stuff in Europe. No, don't move out of Europe because we will, we will not protect you, but we will uh, take care of that. There will be a level playing field when it comes to the costs of carbon. That's a very strong signal to industry. Uh, I think today probably still a lot of industries are very uncertain in Europe because of this, the possibility of the align gun that Europe goes alone. In, the, in such a regime, it's difficult to, to get money for investments. But if now the EU says you will not be alone, uh, we will not protect you, but uh, we will 
create level playing field. That is a very strong signal to industry in Europe. So I think that's the, the first thing, which I probably think is the most important because it, it keeps the, the momentum in industry in Europe. The other thing, of course, is to, to your neighbors. You're putting up some issues or you put some issues on the table. Um, how are you going to do this? Uh, are you indeed going to, to tax imports of uh, steel from uh, Latin America or from China, which have not been met by a carbon cost in when they were produced in, in Latin America or in China? And uh, as we know, when you start meddling in, in trade relations, that might cause retaliation. Uh, so it, it might hit exports from the EU from other sectors, for example. So we, we don't know exactly how this is going to, to play out. But I, I think that um, having thrown the gauntlet, as they say it in England, uh, in front of the, the, the main trading partners, they have to pick up the globe, I think, those on the, the other countries. And um, if you just ease, look at the, at, the, at the easy interpretation of this, if, 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 if EU is going to tax uh, steel which comes from China because the Chinese have not put a price on carbon when this steel was produced, why should the Chinese give money to the EU for doing that? They should rather than put the price on carbon and keep the money for themselves. Right, so it's creating the right incentives. Exactly. So, so I think you will, you will hopefully get the dynamics where the result is that there won't be paid any carbon border taxes. But what will happen is that the countries which don't have a price on carbon today will have one tomorrow. And that's, that's great because then we get a, a complete new dynamics in, in the international climate negotiations. As I see it, uh, what, what we really uh, are struggling with is that there is not a global price on carbon which is equal all over the globe and which really bites so that people take different decisions. We don't have that yet. But now we see uh, a way out of this. So I, I'm pretty excited about this, uh, this development. So I wanted to discuss how you should spend the revenues of carbon pricing. Globally, governments raise approximately uh, 44 billion US dollars in carbon pricing revenues in 2018, with more than half generated by carbon taxes. For example, in January 2019, 45 prominent economists, including several Nobel Prize winners, signed the Economist's statement on carbon dividends, proposing a carbon tax in the US to be returned entirely to US citizens through rebates and a border carbon adjustment system. What do you think should be uh, the way for the EU and national governments to allocate carbon tax revenues in order to protect the most vulnerable groups and ensure a fair energy transition? Yeah. Um, I think there should be a, a direct link to what the EU is stating now, and 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 it, it's 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 actually, uh, as I see it, uh, states several things. Uh, the EU should be carbon neutral by 2050. Every country in the EU should be that. The EU says we want to use the the ETS, the carbon system, to get there. And the EU says we want to extend this system as much as possible. So we want to put more sectors in there. So it's it's the one and only way to get to a carbon-free society. And then it says we are not going alone. Uh, 
we want to introduce a carbon border tax in case other countries don't have a cost of carbon. And the last thing they say, the transition needs to be fair and just. And all of this is said in, in I think, the introduction of the, the speech that the incoming president gave to the parliament. So I think we should indeed try to, to link um, the fairness of the transition to the incomes which might be generated through the carbon tax system. And that will, of course, be highly political. But if we want to get the society behind this, this tremendous effort to, to get to the uh, carbon-free society in 2050, we need to create support for what we are doing, because this is, this is going to, to be a dramatic change in all respects. And um, we need to have everybody on board so I think it's wise, seen from a political point of view, that when you uh, come with a rather uh, dramatic message, you need to look for instruments to get support for this, this uh, dramatic uh, instruments. And uh, then the idea of, uh, of, of, of trying to redistribute the income generated by carbon tax systems uh, to redistribute it back to society, and that might be companies, or it might be uh, groups in society, or it might be countries, so that nobody is kind of left alone. I, I think it's extremely important to to make that link, so that we we underst understand what we are doing and why we are doing it. You're mentioning that support is is important, and of course, social acceptance of carbon pricing isn't always easy because it hasn't asymmetrical effect on different societal groups. This was very clear in 2018 when the French government faced intense yeah. public rejection of a fuel tax uh, that resulted in the wider Gilets jaunes protests. Some researchers argue that applying a carbon tax um, on electricity generation versus, for example, on air transport is highly regressive because all households need to use electricity, of course, but only the higher income ones use air travel significantly. How can we tax emissions in a way that does not deepen income inequalities? That's a very tough one. <laughs> um, an interesting uh, sidestep here is actually to, to, to take a look at uh, some of the work we did in the Energy Transition Commission again. Um, what would be the, the cost effect of go for green plastic if you, we, we, we develop new technologies and uh, what would be the effect of the cost of a bottle uh, which you use to drink your your cola or whatever and we did those calculations and actually if you look at the, the effects on the, the final consumer prices of some of the products it's very limited so even if you put a price on carbon of say 50 or or, or more euro per tons on the, the process of producing plastics and thereby uh, industry in the end develops green plastics. The effect of the, 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 of the increased costs in producing this green plastic in eventually producing a bottle is only one dollar cent per bottle. That would not really uh, it's negligible. Yeah. Affect you. So, so I think that's one of the, the issues we need to, to to take a look at first. Well, if we really are going to change value change, what are actually consequences for uh, the increasing the cost of carbon on the final consumer prices? And 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 in in several or in many cases, it's not that much. But then there are sectors, as you mentioned, uh, 
people use power. Um, if we increase the power, uh, the price of power considerably, it might hit uh, low-income groups more than it hit high-income groups. And, and of, obviously, we need to compensate for that. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm no, no doubt that uh, if we want to make the transition, everybody needs to be on board. And we cannot have a system where people who, have, uh, who are wealthy can kind of uh, always uh, get out of, of the issues, uh, while the people who have not that much money uh, are suffering. So I think we we need to find solutions here. Uh, I don't have a cookbook on how to do that, but uh, I think uh, there is some merit in, 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 in going through, uh, uh, as we did in the commission, what are actually the effects on end user prices when it comes to in increasing the cost of carbon. And you get some surprising results. Uh, the price of a car, if we are going to produce green steel, which means we take coal out of the process of uh, producing steel. We, we, we use renewable electricity to produce hydrogen and we use hydrogen in the, in the process of producing steel. The cost of a car will not increase very much. It will increase a bit, but not. it's not kind of uh, killing the business of, of, of buying a car. So mm -hmm. I think we need a, an intelligent approach to this. So consumers are sensitive uh, to price but also there is a rising consumer preference for low or zero carbon emission products. How do you see uh, that change in consumer preferences impacting the transition? Actually, uh, I think this might be the wild card. Um, when consumers start moving, industry will have to move and it makes easier for politicians to move because after all consumers are voters and if they see that consumers want to go green it's easier actually to put regulation in that direction and get support for that will it happen i think we the, the last year we have seen some amazing changes in attitudes amongst consumers people uh, towards uh, the issue of climate change and companies they realize that. Um, I think one of the most exciting and more inspiring examples is that um, there are mining companies and aluminum companies now which are trying to develop a new process to produce aluminum without CO2 emissions. So call it green aluminum. And it was very <laughs> exciting to read that there were two companies who joined that effort. And the one was Apple and the other one was Nespresso. And if you take a look at your iPad or your iPhone, you see there is quite some aluminum there. And if you look at your Nespresso capsule, you probably also will understand that there is aluminum. So those two consumer companies probably think that in five years' time, their customers will demand that iPads are green and pads uh, yeah, for your espresso machine are green. So they move and, and embark on a technologi technological development. That's very powerful. And I, I see it as a direct response to change in consumer behavior, which now is, you can see in, in different areas of the society. So yes, I think the power of the consumer, uh, when that power really comes to the surface, it might be a catalyst for both industries to move faster in the green direction and for politicians to actually put more uh, regulations or higher prices on carbon uh, to support the transition and and then we get a very positive dynamic so so i'm i'm really hoping that consumers uh, wake up and that uh, companies and politicians uh, listen to that to end our interview i would like to ask you some rapid fire questions 
that you can answer with one or two words or take a wild guess. Zero Carbon Europe by 2050, myth or reality? Reality, I think. The future of storage, batteries or power to gas? Both. There will be a variety of uh, solutions to handle the intermittency of uh, renewables. What year will see the last internal combustion engine vehicle sold in Europe? 1st of November 2034. <laughs> what will the percentage of power generated by prosumers be in 2050? 10%. The main challenge for utilities in the next decade is... To accelerate decarbonization by using data, call it digitalization, to a far greater extent than we do today. And our final question, do you believe that the Paris Agreement goal of keeping the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius, or even at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, will be attained? And if yes, by what date? We have to make it by 2050. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Next time on Net Zero, what is really important is that the operation and the management of that grid is controlled and regulated by the regulatory authority that supports uh, that grid. Thank you for tuning into Net Zero. You can catch new episodes, subscribe, and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts.